Michael Vaughn, and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and if you really get into Tolkien much at all, you understand the concept of subcreation, which is a concept that he very much developed over the course of his life and, you might say, career. And it basically is the idea, if you're not familiar with it, that humans, as kind of created in the image of God, who is himself a creator, are kind of made to sub-create. They have the creative desire to create things of their own, and sometimes that means, like, entire worlds, you know, like Tolkien did, or it could just mean pieces of art, it could be whatever it is, but his whole thesis is that creative urge is a very natural thing to do, and he wrote a poem about this called Mythopoeia, you can find that online, pretty easily, I think, and that was in part written to convince Lewis that, yes, there are myths out there, but myths are kind of a natural part of the human condition. That's what we do, because that's how our psyches work. We just create things. He also touched on this topic in his essay-slash-lecture on fairy stories. I've done a video on that before myself, and this plays out a lot in his own fiction, which I've also done a video on. I'll try to remember to link to both of those videos. And the sub-creation, as it plays out in his own video, is very much connected to Melkor's desire to create things of his own, which leads to his envy and his desire to then destroy things that others have created. It leads to Aule's semi-fallen redemption when it comes to the making of the dwarves. It leads to Feanor's creation of the Silmarils, which then lead to his fall... There's a lot of sub-creative things that go on in Tolkien's fiction, but there's another aspect of this that is not really as obvious, and it's probably because in some ways it's higher than sub-creation. It's actually kind of creation itself, at least from the point of view of Tolkien, and that is children. And the reason i say this, this kind of just occurred to me over the last week, and I started thinking about it, and I realized where it's, whereas it's not really explicit anywhere in any of his writings, there are so many little things that kind of point in this direction that I can't really ignore it as a topic that kind of deserves a little bit of discussion. And what this kind of comes back to is the fact that Tolkien is was a Catholic. And Catholics have this idea, and it's not purely a Catholic idea, but they tend to focus on it more than anybody else, that having children is a participation in the creative act with God, because it is the only way in which humans can literally bring new life into the world, which is the thing that God does. That's kind of like God's highest creative act was creating man in his own image. Whenever a man and a woman get together and they love each other very much, <laughs> they have children. And when they have children, they have also brought man or woman into the world. In They are also in God's own image. And so in that process, humans create things through the participation of, in, in God's own creation, through the gifts that God has given them, namely, you know, the sexual act. It's 
something that God created, which we then participate in, which leads to the creation of further human beings. Now, this seems like it might be a very, not very connected to anything Tolkien wrote, but if you really dig deep into a lot of the writings that aren't, you know, of the major books like The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion, and that kind of thing, you get these little hints strewn about everywhere. And some of them are even in things like The Silmarillion. So, for example, you know, early, early on, you have this idea that the orcs were actually just made by Melkor as kind of out of mud and slime, which is kind of the impression you get that Saruman does in the Lord of the Rings movies by Peter Jackson. And that changes over time, especially because when he gets around to the Lord of the Rings and he writes that line where Frodo says, you know, the shadow cannot make anything of its own, it can only corrupt. At that point, he's kind of come to the conclusion that Melkor Morgoth cannot make living sentient beings of his own. He has to take what's already there, corrupt it, debase it, you know, that kind of a thing. And so orcs, at that point, kind of became, well, they're corrupted elves or something. And he developed that idea over time. And in the same kind of process, that's when he gets into Aule making the dwarves. At first, it's unclear in his early writings where the dwarves came from. It's like, are they from Morgoth? Are they just kind of this weird thing of their own? But over time, he develops the Silmarillion story, and it becomes Aule, who makes the dwarves in impatience for the children. The children being elves and men, children of Eru, or children of Iluvatar. And the interesting thing about that is the humans and the elves are referred to as his children, whereas the Valar are not. And early, early on, the Valar are actually seen as being able to kind of get together like normal humans can and have their own children because they're actually children of the Valar. Early on, Aonwe, although with a slightly different name, who is the herald of Manwe, actually is the son, quite literally, of Manwe and Varda. That changes over time and none of the Maiar end up being actual children of anybody. And so this whole process is developing in the direction of only God can actually create, and the only other beings that can bring other intelligent beings into the world are his own children. And that's a really interesting thing to think about. And then he ends up, when he when Eru you know, confronts Aule about his creation of the dwarves, who are basically automata, who can't do anything without Aule you know, basically making them do it, he ends up giving the dwarves the gift of life and sentience and free will, and then calls them the children of his adoption. So they become the children of Eru, but not because he originally planned it, but just because he just kind of adopts it into his plan. But at that point, they become also capable of doing all the things that humans and elves can do. Now, this is vague and ambiguous, and it doesn't really point to anything super specific, but connecting it to that idea of, you know, that that very strong emphasis that Catholics have, that creation is something that humans can actually participate in, 
it seems like this is kind of a subconscious theme flowing through everything that Tolkien does, and it's playing out. But it gets even more specific when you start really digging into some of the the sidelines of what he wrote and some of the you know more minor stuff. You start reading into the nature of Middle-earth or the unfinished tales where he talks in depth about Elven and Numenorean culture, especially in the nature of Middle-earth and in unfinished tales when they're talking about Numenor and in other places where he talks about the Elven culture. Uh, some of those writings are in the, the later History of Middle-earth books. He really puts a lot of emphasis on how Numenorians, at least early Numenorians, before the, the shadow fell on the whole nation, and the elves saw childbearing as a very unique and special time in their lives. And for elves, of course, this makes even more sense because elves live basically forever. So, I mean, you have kids... And you're not going to have kids forever. The way he ends up writing about elves is they have this one period of their life, which is, for us, very long, but for an elf, you know, kind of a blink of an eye, where they have kids. And they'll space them out for several years, but they won't have kids if, for some reason, they expect the, the parents to be separated for a long time or if there's war going on. Because they want that child-rearing period to be as ideal as possible with both parents there able to raise, train, instruct, and provide for that child. And he goes into a lot of detail about this. And if you you know read all the writings that he goes into, and he develops it over time, especially more in the nature of Middle-earth where he's got all these writings about how to manage their you know, lifespan, how they grow, and what they, you know, when they kind of become adults, and how they cycle through their life, and all this other stuff, he tinkers with it a lot, but that core idea of there being this one period where they're having babies, and raising those babies up, and then they move on to other things, remains the same. It's there kind of permanently, and then he does a similar thing with the Numenorians. He talks about the life of the Numenorians and how their their culture also puts a lot of emphasis on the childbearing years as something special. And this comes up in the, the story of Aldarion and Erendis, where it makes a big deal of the fact that Aldarion leaves Erendis after they've had their daughter Ankalime, and how that's really kind of unusual and Erendis makes a fuss about this as well, kind of justifiably so, saying, you know, my years are shorter than yours, I'm running out of time, if you want, you know, more kids, you better get back here, and Aldarian says, I'll be back in two years, well, it ended up being like nine, uh, not entirely of his own fault, but the main point being here, Aldarian is kind of breaking with Numenorean custom and tradition in not sticking around and having, you know, all the babies and then moving on and doing other things. The Numenorians kind of end up being mini-elves, and even Erendis will point this out. Erendis uh, doesn't say a whole lot, per se, in the story. Some of it we get, like, through a narrator telling us what she taught her daughter on Kalime, but one of the things that she does say is, 
the men of Numenor are kind of like the elves, they or they want to be like the elves, and therefore they go off and they do all these other things. But it's also kind of true that Numenorean men as a whole are imitating elves in this other way because they had that custom of, you know, we have babies and then we raise them up and then we can focus on other things. And so there's this really heavy emphasis if you start looking into the way that Tolkien described the cultures of what, in in a sense, were his really primary examples of the good culture of we really put this emphasis on having babies, raising them up, and making sure that that period of life is as ideal as it can possibly be. Now, again, there's nothing here that's just explicitly pointing towards the idea of humans having babies as a participation in the creative act with God, the ultimate creator, but the fact that they take this period of life so seriously, and the fact that you have this whole backdrop of Aule and the dwarves and humans and elves being the children of Eru, and this whole progression of his thought in the way that, you know, the the idea that sentient life only comes about really from Eru, ultimately, you can't help but think that at least at a subconscious level, some of this was in the back of Tolkien's mind as he was writing out these concepts and developing them over time because he changes from the very, very, you know, not terribly Christian, but still kind of Christian-adjacent myth-writing that he was doing in the early Silmarillion stories in the Book of Lost Tales stuff, where Melkor was creating seemingly, you know independent sentient wills in the orcs and then the dwarves are just who knows what they are you know but they're not good guys and they're not really allied with Belcor necessarily but they're kind of bad guys and you know it develops from that really old mythic type of thing where you could have you know various gods doing their own things creating various forms of life which are all kind of equivalent and develops much more into the Christian adjacent stories that we you know know in their final form, and then he continued to even develop them more after that. And part of that is as a result of his own attempt later in life to bring these concepts and his stories more in line with his own theology and also more in line with the science of his day. You know, he kind of abandons the idea of a round, um, a world made round that was originally flat and starts putting it more in terms of it was always round. The sun and the moon are no longer created from the light of, you know, the last flowers of the two trees. They were actually already there. There's these ideas that he continues to develop and refine and he changes his entire mythological structure in some ways to try to make it more like what our real world has been like in its history and also more like what his own theology teaches. And in some ways you could say that some of that makes the stories less beautiful, like the, you know, taking the trees and disconnecting them from the sun and the moon, the idea that it was a flat world, taking that out of it so that it's not made round whenever Numenor sinks. Some of these, you know, even Christopher Tolkien would argue 
kind of lessen the real mythological and poetic impact of the stories in some ways. The other elements, though, that I'm talking about here of the creation, sub-creation, and all that kind of thing, that's a very different feel. It doesn't necessarily make the stories less powerful or less interesting. In some ways, it actually makes it more interesting because it makes the sub-creation versus participation in creation a really interesting theme to kind of follow through because humans and elves have the ability to participate in creation itself in some ways they are actually greater than the Valar and Maiar now that's caveated a little bit by the fact that Maiar and obviously can participate in that same creative act Melian after all was a Maya who got together with Thingol and had a baby. So it's not like they're excluded from doing that, but as the story goes on, the Valar and Maiar do not have babies with each other. That's not a thing they do. They only do it with other children of Eru. And as a result, we can see that in some special way, the humans and elves, and by adoption the dwarves, are a very unique element of Eru Iluvatar's plan, and that was always kind of the case, but it becomes a more prominent feature when you make them participants in his own creation, and then you even carry that through, and this doesn't tie into the theme as much, but it affects how we look at, you know, the the last music that is kind of prophesied to be played at the end of the world, where all humans, elves, dwarves, everybody will kind of participate in a recreation of Arda Renewed, which is not going to be Arda Marred, and they will all really, truly participate in the creative act all over again in creating the world as it should have been. And that's the only sense in which kind of the Valar and the Maiar were more participants in creation itself more so than humans and elves, but even humans and elves and dwarves are going to get to do that again at the end. So again, whereas you might have said, well, okay, they can have babies, but I mean, the Valar, like, they made water, they made mountains and all this other stuff, so, you know, that's better. Well, humans and elves are kind of going to do that too at the end, so they kind of caught up, in a sense, at, you know, when it came to all of that. So again, that still leaves them in the unique position of we're the only other creatures besides Eru who can bring new sentient life into existence. And the fact that again, Eru, when you look back at the music, he brings you know, the children into the music as his own theme, completely separate from what any of the other Valar or Maiar are doing the Ainur, we could just say completely separate from what any of them are doing in the music. He just brings them into the theme, and nobody really understands it. And, you know, Manwe is said to have kind of the the greatest understanding of some of that going on, but even he is not fully in tune with all of that, because he's the main instrument of the second theme, not the third theme where the, the children come in. So, it's really interesting, and that might have implications for how we think about the themes of music and how they play out through the Ainu Lindale. I'm not prepared to explore that right now, but 
it has implications for how we think about the importance of men and elves in the story because, again, Tolkien is kind of taking this Catholic concept, whether consciously or not, and making it a significant part of who they are and it highlights their importance in the overall creative scheme that Eru Iluvatar has for everything else going going on. So, anyway, this is, like I said, a, an idea that occurred to me earlier this week, and I just got to thinking about it, and I was like, huh. It's one of those things where there's nothing just directly points to it, but there are enough little pieces here and there that you can look at, and... When you see them all, it seems to form a constellation. It's not just a random assortment of stars out there anymore. So, I just wanted to share my thoughts on that. Uh, if you have any further comments or anything else that you think would bear on this topic, please do leave it in the comments below. If you enjoyed the video, please give it a thumbs up and share it around. If you want to make sure you catch all my content, subscribe either here or on alternate platforms. They're linked in the description below. And if you're on YouTube, make sure you click that bell icon to make sure you catch all of my future content. Also in the description are my social links. Catch me on Twitter for Tolkien trivia questions and support links. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie.